0: My name is Sarah Levy, and I'm going to be in conversation with Andrew Levy. We're going to be talking about sexual harassment training and how we build successful sexual harassment training programs. We're going to start this program by playing a clip for you. The clip tells the story of Jeanette.
1: I had noticed that there was a high turnover of staff in the department, but I never understood the reason. When I was given an opportunity to move, I didn't think much of it. I took the new role because I got an increase and the hours were better for me as a mother with a young child. My supervisor was a very touchy-feely sort of guy, but I thought nothing of it because he always had a pleasant persona towards me. He was always asking me and the other girls for a hug. He thought we were friends, so he thought he could do as he pleases. Then one day he asked for a hug, and as we finished hugging, he kind of turned me around and placed his hand on my left breast. I felt numb. I was just thinking that this job was my independence that I had worked so hard for. I was desperate to maintain a cordial relationship with him.
2: Well, I mean, this is just... uh, It's so common on the one hand, but it's so powerful and impactful on the other. And, you know, one of the difficulties, I would think, in teaching people, in training people, is to let them know what it feels to be in the shoes of the other party. Uh, And that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And it requires a degree of, I think, almost maturity or ability to uh, abstract and and to look at the situation, uh, as opposed to letting your pre-programmed responses uh, come in. How, how on earth do you build a training program to deal with these kinds of problems? And what do you do as the HR person who is tasked with the role of introducing and guiding and advising on, on breaches of this kind of policy?
0: Absolutely. So Jeanette's story is an example of an empathy exercise. And we weave empathy exercises throughout our training program. It gives delegates an opportunity to reflect on what it's like to be the victim of harassment and to trigger an emotional and perhaps protective response to the victim of harassment. Triggering empathy is so important, um, especially if we want to bring about a cultural shift. As you've indicated, when people walk into training around harassment, they often come with preconceived notions. Mm. They may be um, buying into certain myths around harassment. But very often they've forgotten that ultimately this is around human beings. And so we weave the empathy into training just to, to kind of highlight the human aspect of it. The other element of Jeanette's story specifically is that it weaves in an important myth around violence and harassment. And that's the myth that only kind of sexually attractive people can be subjected to harassment, Mm. and that perhaps older or disabled people um, don't experience harassment. I mean, if you listen to Jeanette's voice, she sounds like an older woman, and yet she's been abused. Um, And so what we do here is we draw it into the training as a way to really bring home the legal point that in fact anyone can be subjected to harassment and that harassment is unrelated to physical attractiveness or desire even. At the end of the day, harassment is an abuse of power and what we need to do is to show that abuse of power. And one can hear that in Jeanette's story by the fact that she says this work was her independence and she was desperate to maintain a cordial relationship with her boss.
2: And from a didactic point of view, from the point of view of the engineering of the training, what is the purpose of the story?
0: So, as I've said, I think the empathy element mm, is okay. very, very important, but also the myths. We have developed approximately 10 myths that we talk about um, when it comes to sexual harassment training, and those are really important because they confront delegates with um, perhaps unspoken beliefs that they have around harassment, and we need to kind of to break those down so that we can kind of treat and respond to incidents of harassment appropriately.
2: I can see that and I can see immediately why it's a, a better and a more immediate way to approach the training form from a training point of view, rather than sitting people down and saying, right, section two, subsection a, uh, little Roman two says the following. Um, but nevertheless, there is law behind this um, and it's all very well that one teaches or tries to heighten the perception, the perspicacity of the people being trained. How do you teach the law?
0: Yes, it's very important to us when we are addressing a topic as important as sexual harassment that we provide a broader context to look at the issue, but that's not to understate the importance of the law. Of course, we need to educate around the law. In our experience, when people come on training about violence and harassment, they typically come with four questions. The first question is kind of, Why me? Mm. Um, They may be feeling uncomfortable. They may feel that they need to understand why they're there. So we really try to diffuse that. You know, if um, perhaps... For example, a man is called into a sexual harassment training. He may be looking at it and saying to himself, why have I been invited mm. to this training? Are people finding my conduct unacceptable? Are they pointing a finger at me? Are they giving a message? And so that's the first issue is to kind of diffuse that and explain why we're looking at it and why we want to make this cultural shift. Then when it comes to the questions that they ask, typically they ask the question, what is violence and harassment? I don't understand it. And when an employee or a delegate on a training asks that question, it could serve two purposes. So the first possible concern for that question is, I'm not sure how to classify what's happening to me, but it's making me uncomfortable. And the second question is, I actually need to evaluate my own behavior. Um, Perhaps it is that I have um, a sense of humor that is slightly off color at times. So I need to make sure that I'm conducting myself appropriately and I want to make sure I'm conducting myself appropriately and I come to the training to learn what that is. So we spend a lot of time understanding what constitutes violence and harassment and there will certainly be teaching the law and the legal test for sexual harassment to kind of allow people to answer those questions. We then take it a step further and we look at how our behavior can be normalized. So we don't just look at what is harassment and very often we come to these things with a kind of very black and white idea. Something's acceptable, something's not acceptable. But in fact what often happens in organizations and with corporate culture is that behaviors are normalized Mm -hmm. over time Mm -hmm. and that's what makes it so much harder for us to evaluate whether something's okay or Mm -hmm. not okay. So we'll be looking at how behavior is normalized over time. Perhaps we look at our social norms, we may look at our corporate culture and there's lots that happens in organizations that by itself isn't harassment, but may well allow for the more egregious forms of harassment to happen. I said that there were four questions. So what are the other questions? The next question is, What do I do if someone reports an incident to me? That's a very common concern for delegates, particularly delegates um, who are HR professionals. How are they going to respond? And we really need to take time to explain to them how to respond. There may be things that they're doing that actually seeks to minimize the behavior or seeks to silence the victim of harassment. So that's the second question. The next question is, what do I do if I witness it? And this question is really about, we spoke earlier about the fact that one in four employees claim that they've seen harassing behavior in the workplace. What do they do when they see that behavior? And are we creating a corporate culture that allows people Mm -hmm. to stand up? So what we want to do is move from being bystanders to what's called either an active bystander or an upstander and it's been found that internationally um, this is really the best way to address violence and harassment the experience came about initially in america um, particularly in the navy and the army so Mm. in the military Mm. and also on university campuses where they have huge issues around violence and harassment and they found that the best way to put an end to it and to bring about a cultural change is to empower the witnesses, to empower the bystanders to take an active role.
2: That really is uh, interesting. You know, you mentioned uh, the army uh, or perhaps a disciplined environment like that. Uh, And of course, what you're talking about are, are hierarchies. And hierarchies are defined by and determined by power and the exercise of power. And, of course, the minute you start with power, you've got the risk of abuse. So you've almost got to teach people how to exercise the power in a non-abusive manner. And, of course, from a training point of view, that's uh, that's pretty challenging. But I, I want to pick up a specific point that you raised about uh, the active bystander or the upstander. I mean, uh, w- w- what do you mean by this? Do you, are you almost suggesting that, Uh, The training succeeds by teaching the population to actually get involved and, and stop it or do something about it, as opposed to the complainant.
0: Absolutely, that's what I'm suggesting. So the problem of the bystander is one that psychologists and academics have researched. And what they've found is that the more people who witness bad behavior, so an incident, Mm -hmm. for example, of violence or harassment, the more people who witness that incident, the less likely it is that a person will say anything.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And the reason for that is that everyone in the group who stands around and witnesses the behavior either assumes that someone else will say something or they think to themselves this must just be the way things are done around here and that's known as the bystander effect so if you look at it from a harassment point of view um, or from the perspective if we think again of empathy and we think about the victim the victim now has a double whammy not only have they been the target of a harassing behavior but they've also had the humiliation of colleagues co-workers watching what's happened and no one has stepped forward Um, so we need to address that bystander problem. And as I said, it's, it's recognised as a kind of psychological element. So what we need to do is to train the individuals in the room who witness it to actually step up and to say something.
2: Uh, you know, of course, that implies a degree of personal risk. I mean, on the one hand, uh, you're teaching people how to rat on your friends, um, which is just dubious in itself because it's open to abuse, like the grievance procedure can be abused, But you then have another situation, which is particularly South African, where if you do that, the chances of retributive behavior uh, is, is a very real one. How do you deal with that?
0: So we're absolutely looking for people to be able to stand up and to say something. But you're right. Your point goes to risk. It's risky to say something. Mm. And so what we recommend is that you don't have to say something in the heat of the moment. And mm, there are different ways in which you can say something. So we have developed a methodology around becoming an upstander, and the first part of that methodology is to decide am I going to say something immediately or am I going to wait either until things have cooled down or perhaps I'm going to wait and say something but not say something directly to the harasser or the bully. So there are various strategies that one can take. The point is not just to witness it and keep mm, quiet. I,
2: I, I see that. And, you know, my inclination Uh, Unless it was, you know, an absolutely extreme form would be to say, take a bit of time. Don't do this hot foot. And I think in so many situations in the workplace, the immediate, you know, gut reaction to use that phrase is the wrong one uh, and it makes things worse. So if one can teach to To think, to analyze, and then to almost categorize from, you know, this is not serious, actually saying at this point I must actively intervene becomes very, very difficult.
0: And I think the point is that the intervention doesn't need to be threatening. And often Mm -hmm. the intervention is better if it's done early on.
2: Intervention is better than cure. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) So what we need to do is we need to encourage people. I like the point that you make about thinking and not taking on risky behaviors, we never want to escalate the situation, Mm, mm. right? But what we want is a situation where people feel empowered to do something at a later stage. So very often what happens is I witness something, I don't say something in the moment, and then I believe that I've lost my opportunity. And what part of the upstander training is saying is you haven't lost your opportunity. You can reflect on something and you can address it. And there are various ways in which you can address it. You can address it directly yourself, I would imagine it would depend very much on your relationship to the harasser and whether you're able to, if you feel that there's an equality or you feel that you are perhaps peers or co-workers, perhaps you could, you know, you have a friendship, perhaps you could say something. Alternatively, you may want to speak to a supervisor or you may actually just want to speak to the victim and to say to the victim, hey, I witnessed that. I don't think it's okay. Can I encourage you to go to HR? Can I support you to go to HR?
2: I think that's uh, incredibly useful, Um, but it also presupposes that uh, people are uh, mature enough and have the ability to discern that this is wrong and I will do something about it, particularly in the world of work, if you're in in a junior position, you know, one takes the, the line, shut up, keep your mouth closed, don't get involved.
0: So I think we see that line, um, not just in the workplace, but across South African society. So we talk often about how if you hear domestic violence or you hear a dispute Mm -hmm. in the block of flats you live in, you turn your radio up, you Mm -hmm. don't go and intervene. So I think that you're right, this is a shift. It's a significant shift to ask people to be involved. But having said that, I'm not sure that I agree with your point that junior people don't see it or have the ability to recognize it. I think very often they do. They are uncomfortable in the moment. They may be uncomfortable mm, because of the mm, power situation mm. in the workplace, but I think most people know when they see something that makes them uncomfortable.
2: Yeah, On a mature reflection, I agree. I think it takes a certain level of maturity and um, almost to, to be objective about a situation and confidence uh, to deal with it um, and of course these things are not easy to put across in a training program. How do you deal with those problems?
0: Yeah, they're not easy to put across in a training program. And we need to find um, the balance between making people aware of behaviors that are acceptable and those that are unacceptable. And the worst outcome for us would be a situation where they start to think that any interaction is unacceptable. And so one really has to look at, I think the key comes from the legal test, whether the conduct is unwelcome. And Mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time exploring what unwelcome Mm -hmm. means in order to empower people people to recognize what's okay and what's not okay. Mm. So back to your point about the talking to, taking a stand, being an upstander, it may well be that you witness something that makes you uncomfortable and you actually seek out the target and you say to the target, hey, what did you think of that situation? In that conversation it may become clear that the target welcomes it, that Mm. it's no problem, that they regard it, for example, as banter Mm. in which case you're not going to intervene further.
2: Mm. Mm. I, I I still think and I see a tremendous need for this in workplaces and the workplace is a really unhappy place for so many people because of the uh, extent of bullying of abuse harassment they get from their immediate supervisor or manager or superior and you know i've i 've seen management training over the years come and go and etc uh, etc et but I've never seen that this has been a part of it um, and so many people who are promoted are promoted because they're good at the job you know, maybe the best guy on the floor when it comes to uh, following a plan and you know turning a piece of metal or whatever it is oh we'll make him the manager we're we'll making the supervisor and of course he has none of those skills at all now, we've done uh, a bit of this training. What, what kind of organizations do this? I wouldn't imagine it's the little panel beating shop around the corner where it had three employees, all of whom are family.
0: <laughs> we've been doing this for a couple of years now. And where we really started was with larger corporates who wanted to take a leadership role. They were looking at what was going on both within our society and within our workplaces, and they stepped forward and said, this is what we want to do. We want to address these issues. Increasingly, corporate South Africa is waking up to this issue and is looking to address it. We've worked with a number of different corporations across different industries, different sectors. Very often the nature of the problem is somewhat different. For example, the situation you're going to find in a mining environment Mm -hmm. is going to be very, very different to the situation that you may find in financial services, for example. But what we are learning is that those corporates want to take a stand and want to make a change. And they see it as very much a part of their employment equity agenda, they see it very much as a part of how they ensure that there is equality in the workplace. What we found is across those organizations, across those industries, what we need to be teaching people is, first of all, to find their voice. And once they are motivated and they want to become upstanders. We need to teach them how to intervene. We've developed a methodology, a toolkit, if you want, um, that offers delegates ways to remember how they can intervene, what they can say, how they can say it, so that they can stand up and make a difference. And we found across all different organizations, that the methodology is well-received, that delegates walk away with an understanding. They understand what violence and harassment is. They know what to do if someone reports it to them. They know why they need to stand up and put an end to it. But more importantly, they know how to become that upstander or active bystander. And in this way, corporates can start to make a cultural shift.
2: Thank you very much. I'm Andrew Levy. I was in conversation with Sarah Levy, and um, she heads up the training and development part of uh, our business. I hope you found this useful, and um, we will talk to you again on our next podcast. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you very much. Look forward to meeting with you again.